Welcome to Collaborative Transformation, Driving the Deal podcast, focused today on FDA considerations. We're excited to bring you perspectives from McDermott's regulatory and compliance thought leaders on the trends and opportunities they're seeing in the market as they relate to deals involving FDA-regulated products. Joining us today are partners Vanessa Pollard and Velika Peoples-Dyer. Joining Vanessa and Velika is Kellen Aiken, who joined McDermott recently from the FDA, where she served as regulatory counsel in the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. So as we all know, there was lots of news recently about uh, the leadership transition at the FDA. And in outgoing Commissioner Gottlieb's statement on March 14th, he cited specifically the need for the life sciences industry to modernize. I'd love to get your interpretation of that statement and a little bit about um, what you think that means for organizations with collaborations in play right now and how collaboration can help them advance those goals. Vilik, I don't know if you want to start us off. Sure, sure. I, th- I think first I would want to point out that, you know, obviously the FDA commissioner job is a really important job for the agency and sort of just under- underline and underscore the fact that the agency's mission doesn't change. Right, so the FDA commissioners, they come in, they go out, they change over the years, right? But as a biopharma industry, we're constantly looking at that and it's happening all the time, right? So the FDA's mission continue, remains the same to sort of help, help make sure that we get um, safe and effective products to the market. So it doesn't change because the commissioner changes. However, I think Kellen does have some <coughs> thoughts though to add about what she saw uh, being in the agency right. on uh, Dr. Gottlieb's contributions and things of that nature. Yeah, I agree with you, Valika. Um, the agency mission doesn't change, but I think under certain leadership, there may be a greater focus in certain areas. And I anticipate that this will continue under new leadership and the agency's focus on modernization. And um, in thinking about modernization, that means um, using kind of disruptive technology to develop biosimilar products. So um, one of the areas that the agency is really um, pushing is modernizing the development of um, products, particularly biologics and biosimilars. They're very challenging uh, products to manufacture and um, there's been a slower uptake in Uh, getting these products to market and also in getting uh, consumers and in educating consumers about what these type of products are and how they can be um, useful in in treating different disease conditions so um, in the collaborative deal space um, companies are going to have to work on identifying kind of complementary business relationships so um, having technology and subject matter expertise that will allow um, for the development of biosimilars products along with um, communicating with the agency about um, how they can develop these products, what the agency is looking for um, as far as data and analysis. Looking at it from an impact on deals perspectives, when we're talking about modernization, we think that we'll see more collaborations between biotech companies and um, contract research organizations having to develop these complex drug products and using the biotech's manufacturing and technology information, coupling that with the CROs that have access to um, pharma and biopharma companies. In the digital health space, um, Vanessa, if there's any comments on the modernization and the impact on deals in that space? Well, I think the recent trends at FDA um, are driven a lot by 21st Century Cures and the 21st Century Cures Act and all of the various things that 
are happening throughout the centers to implement the provisions of that statute that are really focused on reshaping various FDA and other healthcare statutes and processes to account for the fact that innovation is real, it's happening. It's happening at a very quick rate in healthcare, along with innovations like the Biosimilars program. I think that the Center for Devices has been really forward thinking in its approach to regulating digital health. What we're seeing is that the life sciences ecosystem is changing very rapidly. There are lots of new models for how technology, med tech, and even traditional biologics and therapies are being developed. Increasingly, we're seeing pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies partnering with uh, data companies, with hardware and software companies, with internet companies. And all of this is around providing more information to patients, to caregivers, to providers. And it's really impacting the way that FDA approaches the regulation of devices and software. And what we're seeing is FDA, particularly in the Center for Devices, taking a very proactive, risk-based, practical approach to what they are going to regulate and how they're going to regulate those things. Um, and so I think that represents a sea change for the industry. Vanessa, you just touched on a lot of um, big trends or big shifts that you're seeing um, from your view, whether it's 21st century trends, modernization, which we've talked about, the agency being more proactive and practical generally. What are some of the other macro trends um, that you're all seeing impacting life sciences organizations specifically as they're embarking on these new deals involving FDA regulated products or devices? I mean, I think we're consistently seeing, you know, divestitures. We're seeing, you know, we continue to see a lot of acquisitions. There's any number of companies that are always ready to sort of buy uh, someone else's or license someone else's product that they decided they're no longer interested in pursuing. Companies I think are taking, as Vanessa was mentioning, in a, in a different context, sort of a risk-based approach on figuring out who do we want to be? What do we want to be known for? And they're focusing on certain disease states and conditions. In many circumstances, those disease states and conditions are in this sort of rare disease oncology type space where we're seeing that. We're seeing a lot of gene therapy uh, type companies that are sort of focusing on gene therapy uh, and sort of also to sort of bounce off what, what Vanessa mentioned about the personalized medicine component of it all, right, when we're combining traditional biotech and biopharma with these sort of larger technology-based companies, what we're finding in there is personalized medicine, right, figuring out how do we create products that focus on not only just disease state and condition, but also on an individual's own makeup right, to be able to figure out how that individual might respond to that product. So I think companies, therefore, then are sort of having to be more responsible for what are we actually buying or investing in, uh, and how do we go about making sure that we remain compliant with all of the FDA's laws and regulations, including in new areas where the FDA is still sort of formulating their guidance and getting their hands around this sort of explosion and sort of quote unquote personalized medicine, um, how do we make sure that we're compliant and making sure that they understand what they're buying? And I think that that takes um, an investment in a certain level of expertise within your company and investing in uh, outside expertise as well to make sure that you understand that and you stay on the right side of that. And I just want to piggyback off of something that you mentioned, Valika, when you were talking about the rare disease space, these divestitures and companies focusing on like, you know, 
just one specific therapeutic area of rare diseases. One of the, I think, draws uh, to that and which makes these type of the business plans appealing is that um, there are some regulatory issues that are driving these trends, right? So the agency has made, um, made it very clear that there is a drive to really um, develop drug products in the rare disease space and um, they're very open to collaborating with companies making sure that they've got everything that they need as far as correspondence with the agency for product development um, and getting these um, products cleared through the agency a lot of these rare disease products have a high approval rate they're getting fast-track designations um, orphan exclusivities so that makes it really appealing to, to companies to pursue um, these line of product development. And I think one of the things that, you know, Kellen and Vanessa and I also spoke about earlier was that we're seeing that as companies sort of focus in on, you know, either one disease state area or a few disease state areas, they're also sort of focusing in on the development, i.e. they're going to focus on developing the product and they're going to outsource the manufacturing, continuing to outsource manufacturing more, um, continuing to out outsource the clinical trial work to CROs. Uh, in some cases, even uh, looking at specialized sales forces who have a lot of experience in selling in a particular disease state or condition, as well as medical science liaisons who also have that expertise. So they're thinking, we want to focus, we're going to bring this deal in, we're going to focus it on development, getting it, to, getting it through the FDA approval process and making sure we commercialize, but these other pieces, we're going to leave all of that, which of course takes, uh, takes away all of the additional strain of the manufacturing, so to speak and the sales, right, uh, take some of that out to some of these other entities that are out there, the CMOs, the CROs, other entities that are out there providing those services to the industry. But also opens up a whole nother yes. sort of channel of collaboration opportunities, right, right? where we're seeing people come together where previously Big Pharma may have owned all that on right. their own or, or something of that nature, right? Over the years that's been happening. We've seen where a lot, you know, the CMOs, particularly the contract manufacturing organizations, really have increased their, their ability to manufacture more products in their locations. Um, the industry themselves, sort of like the big players, they're sort of divesting themselves of their manufacturing units and saying, you know, here, you can you can buy this. So, you know, I think it's something that we're going to continue to see as companies do focus on the development rather than the actual manufacturing uh, of, of the products. Kellen, I want to come back to something that you just mentioned as well, which is the agency being sort of more engaged in and open to collaborating with the industry. You mentioned a little bit there about bringing things to market more quickly, fast-tracking approvals. Can you give us some examples of how the agency is doing that, what the benefit is to the industry, and, and what some of that collaboration is looking like? What the agency is doing is they're ushering out more guidances um, on product-specific development plans, um, also ushering out guidances on how, what type of research would be acceptable, what type of data um, you could submit with your application in support of um, safety and efficacy for like these these rare disease products and this is part of a larger um, attempt to increase patient access and it goes back to what Velika was talking about about the precision medicine and trying to um, identify these spaces where um, typically people have had to endure um, disease states or conditions that um, pharma wasn't paying attention to because it wasn't affecting the masses but now with these type of um, 
fast-track designation, which means it's going to be reviewed by the agency quicker, um, more interaction with the agency on kind of on a rolling basis within with review of the application. It's provided a new avenue that um, allows the industry and manufacturers and research um, R&D folks to collaborate with the agency and understand what the agency needs um, and also getting access to um, additional information that the agency has with respect to kind of these these rare disease states to help inform the development of their products. Vanessa, from, from your perspective there, what are you seeing as the benefits to some of more of this openness from the industry side of the house in terms of how they're collaborating with um, the agency? Well, I think one of the obvious benefits is um, greater efficiency, um, particularly when you're dealing with innovative or novel products. The level of openness, the level um, of communication, the willingness on the part of industry stakeholders, and agency stakeholders to um, sit down in a room together and sort through challenges, I think overall benefits everybody, um, particularly for smaller companies or startup companies. Um, many of these companies, um, an FDA um, in the medical device space or in the drug or biologic space, an FDA approval or clearance um, can mean the difference between the company's viability and survival. And the cost and expense that's associated with taking a product through clinical trials and through the FDA uh, review process can be a, a real gating issue for a lot of companies that have potentially groundbreaking technologies or, or therapies or products. And so we have, in, in a very long career um, as an FDA lawyer, relatively long anyway, um, seen a number of companies who didn't have the benefit of having a, a pre-sub meeting with FDA or having even a, an informal regulatory meeting with FDA um, at, at the early development stages who put a lot of money into developing a product only to find um, once they started to go through the approval process um, that they, um, the company and, and the regulators at FDA had a very different view on what parameters, tests, or other things were necessary to validate um, and establish the safety or effectiveness of the product. And that kind of outcome, sort of not getting an approval or clearance once you've invested a lot of money into it, can be um, a game changer, for particularly for a small company. So I think the most significant um, benefit of this new era of transparency uh, and collaboration is um, that it can create a lot of efficiencies, a lot of cost savings for companies to have the benefit of early engagement with FDA in the product development uh, process. And I think that increasingly we're seeing that investors um, are, are looking more at um, the regulatory processes and whether and to what extent um, companies that they're looking to invest in have engaged with FDA um, and placing a lot more emphasis um, on um, the, the regulatory process and the path to market. So I think the increased transparency, the increased willingness on the part of the agency to collaborate 
and to find solutions um, and paths to market, particularly for innovative products, is, is very beneficial all around. So you definitely just picked up on a piece that I wanted to explore a little further, and Felika, I don't know if you want to share your thoughts, but how does that increase transparency, better efficiency, how does that actually translate, or how do we think it might translate into deal-making, um, you know, whether it's a partnership or M&A or, or what have you? Well, I think, you know, like Vanessa was just mentioning, if we have, if companies have had the opportunity to have those discussions with the agency, right, then the person, the company that's looking to either invest in or acquire um, the product will have a much better understanding of the regulatory environment to which, you know, say, let's just say, you know, they're buying a product in phase two or phase three or let's just go back. If companies have had those interactions and they can document and share those interactions with the, let's just say the buyer in this instance, then that gives the buyer more, more, much more of an understanding of what they're buying into, right? And so if you don't know what you're buying into, you sort of are a little bit, a bit of a loss, and you're trying to figure out what is the potential future value of this product, how much money do I as a buyer have to put into developing this product? If you haven't had those discussions, an understanding of where, what the agency's thinking about your product development pathway, whether that's your clinical trial program, uh, the type of patients for your clinical trial, all those types of details. If you haven't had those discussions, you really don't know quite what you're selling, and the buyer doesn't quite necessarily understand what they're buying. Obviously, in the case of some of these Me Too products, it can be a little bit easier, but we're finding, again, going back to how we're focusing so much more on personalizing. Um, I think there's a lot less Me Too products and a lot more innovation, uh, new products intended to treat uh, rare disease states and conditions and, and of that nature, and definitely a lot of digital health products um, that serve different purposes than some of them that may already be out there. So I think you really do need to understand that up front. Uh, what type of diligence has this company done that you're looking into buying and ha what kind of communications they've had with the agency? So I know no one on this, on this call has a crystal ball, um, <laughs> but with that increased transparency and that better documentation, better understanding, and it, more ability to diligence effectively, do we, do we think we'll see more effective collaborations, more successful collaborations, things that get to market faster across the board because people know more, or will that not perhaps impact our, our ability to see that? Theoretically, I think you should, should see some more effective collaborations. I think it should, um, and, and being you know, uh, in-house myself for quite a while in my career and sort of being a part of sort of creating co-partner deals and various types of licensing and collaboration deals, I do think that will allow a team, right? Uh, either whether you're sort of in a co-partner relationship or you have a new, a new product that you've licensed in or acquired, it allows that internal team to be able to see what's happening sooner. So if they need to pivot, Right, they can pivot. Right, if they need to say we've got to redraft our clinical study design for this phase one or phase two trial based on X Y Z information or based on X Y Z feedback from the agency, they're able to do that as opposed to sort of walking down the street a little bit longer than they should have and been able to have, having to dial it back, which of course resorts resort, um, resorts in spending money unnecessarily uh, to an already very costly development process. I agree, and I think it also informs folks that are interested in making a deal about the pressure points and opportunities so um, if there's a product that's maybe in you know phase one and they realize that they're going to have you know some really the, the clinical trial development is is going to be challenging or they've had an opportunity to speak with the agency and there are certain things that they're just not equipped to do that's when you're able to identify you know the contract research organization that can help you in that space um, and so I think 
having this engagement with the agency can really inform where where the weaknesses are and being able to as um, we talked about before getting these these specialty areas whether it's a CMO CRO Salesforce or whatever it is that you may need um, to to make sure that your product can successfully launch. Another important aspect of or impact of all of the regulatory efforts towards innovation and collaboration coming out of FDA is that while I think FDA is making a lot of efforts to reduce the regulatory barriers to market entry for innovative products, they still need to balance that um, and I think they are attempting to balance the speed to market with the you know, mission of the agency, which is to ensure safety and efficacy of products and to have enough data um, to support safety and efficacy before the product is launched. And I think the way that FDA is trying to meet that balance is while they may be reducing a lot of the time and the barriers to market entry for innovative products, they are, I think, putting in place more post-market um, surveillance, data collection, and study requirements for those innovative products because where you really get to see um, the product and really get to assess um, its safety and efficacy is, is when it is in use in a broader population of, of patients. And so I think that investors and companies, as they're thinking about their product development strategy, need to also account for the cost and look at the um, resources that may be necessary to conduct and comply with all of the post-market studies and post-market surveillance obligations that are often imposed on these innovative products. And I'll just add to that too. I think one, you know, one of the areas that Vanessa is mentioning as far as the post-market surveillance is pharmacovigilance, um, really, which goes into the safety and efficacy of the product. Right. So you have a clinical trial population, whether from phase one, two, or three, that led you to the approval. Now you're in, you know millions, potentially millions, tens of thousands at least of, of people, depending on your drug product, it, you may get a whole different safety profile um, that <clears throat> you need to monitor. You need to have people within your company, experts that are able to help you monitor for any trends in data, any trends or upticks in any way that you may need to change anything, anything in your label, right? You may need to change your warning section. Uh, certainly looking at, you know, once the product is marketed, you now have a product liability, potential product liability risk. So investors that are looking at this need to be informed of that. It's not really, it's obviously an amazing industry, right? People make certainly a lot of a lot of money in the industry, but there is a reason why the industry turns around and invests a lot more of that money back into development, uh, commercialization, post-marketing surveillance, uh, and building those teams within the, within the company or either external to the company that can help them comply. So, Vanessa, can you talk to us a little bit about the FDA's Digital Software Pre-Certification Program specifically? Talk to us a little bit about why is this an important program? What kind of deals and tech innovation would you expect to see based on this? Well, I think that the Digital Health Software pre-certification program is one of the key examples of FDA and particularly the Center for Devices efforts to align the FDA's mission and their legal and regulatory obligations with the pace um, of innovation and the changes, quite frankly, to the way traditional medical devices 
are developed when those medical devices are driven by software or data or um, AI or 3D printing. Um, and so I think it is, um, once it gets um, up and running, um, going to be a really important step in um, expediting the path to market for certain types of technologies and companies. And I think promoting more transparency and collaboration between FDA and, and regulated companies. Uh, so the idea uh, behind the pre-certification program is that it started as a pilot program with nine companies that represented both big, traditional, global medical device companies, um, software tech companies, and startup companies. And the criteria um, for participation in the pilot is that the companies had to be engaged in developing uh, software as a medical device. And the idea behind the pre-certification program, it's not at all dissimilar from a program that FDA already has in place, which is a, a third-party accredited entity that FDA allows to review certain types of um, lower-risk device products. Um, and the review by those third-party accredited entities um, will be uh, Credited, accredited by FDA, um, and it can be an expedited pathway to market for traditional medical devices. So I think that FDA um, very um, astutely picked up on uh, some of these uh, traditional approaches in conceptualizing the pre-certification program. Um, what it is is that FDA will take a holistic look at a company um, looking at the company itself, even aspects of the company, such as the management culture, um, their quality systems, their cybersecurity protocols. So looking at the infrastructure that the company has in place and has invested um, to ensure that the devices that they develop will comply with FDA requirements and function um, safely as intended. And so the idea is that companies who are willing to um, essentially open themselves up to FDA taking this holistic and comprehensive review, um, once they sort of meet the pre-certification as an organization and they're certified, FDA essentially for certain products will be able to move them through the, the review process at a faster pace because the companies may not be required to submit to FDA certain types of data that they currently have to submit because they will have already been reviewed and pre-certified um, by a third party um, organization or through some other process. So it really is FDA sort of doing an excellence appraisal of the company as an analog in some cases for the company having to provide a lot of detailed data about their manufacturing process. And so cutting out um, some of that um, will, I think, be resource saving for the companies. Um, the trade-off, though, is that by participating in the pre-certification program, you are, as a company, agreeing to open yourself up to um, providing a lot of insight into the functions of the organization to your regulator. Um, and the benefit is that if you're willing to do that and the infrastructure and all of the processes 
um, give FDA comfort that you can safely produce these devices, then devices that are produced by these pre-certified companies um, will hopefully get a more expedited review with more input from FDA. So I think it's a very innovative way to balance FDA's obligation to ensure the safety and efficacy of products and, and put them through a rigorous review with the recognition that the pace of development of these technologies are, is just astronomical and the way that they are developed requires a much more agile and, and flexible um, approach, both from a development standpoint and from a regulatory review standpoint. So it does have its complexities. I think it does present some challenges for companies who are not able to avail themselves of this pathway. Um, but I think generally the concept behind it um, is a sensible one. I think it remains to be seen how it will all uh, sort of shake out in practice. What is one piece of advice in, in the context of all that we've discussed that you would give to life sciences companies right now conducting deals that involve FDA regulated products? My one piece of advice would basically make sure that you're getting doing really deep diligence. There are tons of potential issues uh, that you could encounter when you're doing diligence on a deal on a company and trying to figure out is this something that we should either invest in or buy um, and I think that's some key I can't think that's really key to really understanding whether or not uh, you want to one make the acquisition but two if you say okay I want to make the acquisition understanding what you're acquiring and really helping you understand what money what cost should I put on it and then what future costs should I build into it so that we're all understanding we're at the table and the investors are understanding the potential impact for the future I think to piggyback on Valika's point, obviously it's critical to conduct diligence, but I think the nature and the focus of diligence when you're talking about innovative products um, sometimes needs to be uh, flexible and as agile as the products that um, are coming to market. And so I think when companies are thinking about diligence for a novel software, or, or novel products, a lot of the traditional ways that we think about regulatory risk or compliance um, sometimes you know, applies differently to these kinds of products. Uh, one example is when you're thinking about um, AI-driven technologies, um, as they go through the FDA process, um, the developers of these technologies may not um, know um, in some cases, uh, how the technology is going to function. And with a lot of the AI technologies, they get smarter and they are trained, which is the technical term, once they're in the hands of the user. And so the data, the inputs that the users um, put into the AI actually impact how that AI functions in the long term. And so FDA is, is thinking about all of these things and assessing the safety and efficacy of the product. And I think that investors who are looking to invest in some of these technologies have to get may be comfortable with a, a higher degree of risk um, and a higher degree of uncertainty um, in terms of the long-term um, performance and sometimes value proposition for some of these technologies. Um, but uh, uh, many of them are, are worth the investment um, uh, 
Um, and so I think the, the, the key takeaway is that I think we have to have a more flexible and nuanced and evolved approach to how we think about regulatory risk and a diligence, how we think about compliance risks and diligence, um, and how we think about value um, for these products um, that, that accounts for the, the speed of innovation and, and the unknowns. I've heard between Valika and Vanessa, do your diligence, uh, get comfortable with a different risk profile, think about risk and value in a more nuanced way. Colin, I'm gonna ask you to bring us home here. Any advice that you have for life sciences companies dealing with the FDA? I think my colleagues did a, a very nice job of hitting the relevant points and I think the, the critical points were thinking about um, conducting deals in the FDA regulated space. I, I guess the one takeaway is that sometimes when, I think most of the times when folks are thinking about these deals, the FDA isn't really top of mind. The, the regulatory piece isn't top of mind. They typically think of it as um, checking the box. and um, what we're trying to impress upon is that all of these actors, all of these people in um, the life sciences space are typically being regulated by the FDA at some point. And so understanding those pressure points, um, being prepared, forward thinking, um, and having, as Vanessa mentioned, the agility to, to sometimes having to be reactive um, because you, you know, the, the landscape is always changing. Thanks for joining us for our podcast today. For more analysis about collaborative transformation happening across the health and life science industries, check out McDermott's blog at healthlifesciencesnews.com. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be considered as legal advice or any other advice on any specific fact or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott will memory makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liabilities any person in respect of the consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2019, McDermott will memory all rights reserved. Any use of these materials including reproduction, modification, distribution, or replication without prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered as a term advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a small outcome.